In this episode, Dr. Kashi tackles the topic of sugar and health. He talks about the concept of healthy food and discusses the World Health Organization's recommendations on sugar and specifically childhood malnutrition. Then, encourages a slightly more scientific approach, one considering the physiological milieu, a fancy word for all the stuff going on instead of just a snapshot at one given point. Roll the intro! Hello, and welcome to <sniffs> Coffee with Cashy. I am your host, Dr. Trevor Cashy. And today, today's lesson is pretty spicy, I think. I think some science, some philosophy, even some possibly triggering political stuff, but fair warning, it concerns interesting things that happened in modern history, at least, at least. But this lesson now. This lesson, this lesson does make Dr. Cashy look like a conspiracy theorist yet again. So the conspiracy theory hat goes on. It goes on. So here's what you're learning. Or noodling on, at least. Is this sugar thing about prescriptions or proscriptions? Hmm? Turns out to be a lot of both, and that's confusing. I'll also go into what those things mean, so it's all good. Two, what does getting a child to go to bed on time, or you, or your child, or you were a child, what, is, what does that have, have to do about the repetitive stupidity of public policies and public shaming? Hmm? And number three, does a healthy food exist? There will be some touching there. That came out strange. You're touching that. You're touching. We're touching on that. Good grief. All right. Moving on before anything else crazy happens. That reminds me. If you've ever had issues going to bed at a reasonable hour, or if you were a pain in the butt when you were younger going to bed at a reasonable hour, or even crazier when you tried to get anyone else, especially a kid, to go to bed at a reasonable hour, especially if they were resistant to it, hmm? Turns out this is a lot more common in, in, in this whole mess with the sugar debacle than you may think. Save that for later. Save that for later. A little bit of background here. Sugar keeps people, especially children, alive and helps them thrive. Get into a fun experiment with that. I think maybe in the next lesson, okay? Uh, did you know that malnutrition is the underlying cause of, of about half of all of the death, the death of children five and under? Think about that. Half of all the deaths of children five and under are due to malnutrition as an underlying cause. This is straight from the Bulletin of the World Health Organization by Dr. Rice's group. This is also parroted in a manual for physicians and other senior health workers released by the World Health Organization, the WHO, the WHO. And did you know how the World Health Organization recommends treating those conditions on the front lines and as a first line defense? Sugar, sugar. In fact, the World Health Organization lists sugar as an essential medicine worldwide. Even Dr. Malikoff got an article accepted into one of the world's foremost scientific journals, aptly named Science. <laughs> That's how old school it is. That's how long it's been around. That's how crazy it is. That's how hard it is to get into. It's called Science. <laughs> Just a couple years back, and it is titled A Simple Recipe for Saving Lives. Want to know what that recipe is? Want to know? A liter of water, 
a fistful of sugar, and a half a teaspoon of salt. A literal recipe for life. That's what it is in one of the world's foremost scientific journals. All right? A literal recipe for life. Yet the rigid diet centrism and the dogmatism and the black and white views around sugars, it grows at an alarming rate. And it is in conflict with fundamental science and even more basic medicine. It is peculiar then that the World Health Organization's protocol for a recovering child is greater than 500%, 500% more than the current World Health Organization's prescriptions for sugar consumption under normal conditions. That is strange, don't you think? That sort of conflict is interesting. That's kind of what we're gonna dive into a little bit. And it's this sort of apologetic absurdity that promulgates the dogmatism, it makes it worse. In simpler terms, even the WHO one of the most respective organizations in the world, they fall into this logical absurdity. Is it a medicine or is it toxic? <laughs> Good grief. And they're saying it's both. That is a problem on a lot of levels. It's a weak argument. Prescription is the formal recommendation by an authority. They literally prescribe sugar to save lives and 5X whatever, it's just, it's crazy. And then proscription is the formal condemnation by an authority. They do both. That's confusing and conflicting. And something like that seems like an honest typo, right? Prescription and proscription, like they're just one letter off basically. And you know, they're, they're far away on the keyboard, but you know, accidents happen uh, until you see the recommended numbers change, that is. <laughs> And this is why ignoring the physiological context of the consumer is willfully neglectful by authorities. They know. However, that causes confusion, politicization, and therefore polarization in the public everywhere else. So what gives? Well, like other health conscious public policy and guideline makers and science talkers to normal people, uh, they're arbitrarily adjusting the recommendations trying to account for embarrassingly, honestly, uh, what appears to be what they've deduced as typical human behavior rather than, you know, physiology and stuff. Since they and most every other guideline maker and recommender and rule writer, they operate actually under the rather sensical impression that people do whatever the heck they want, regardless of what they suggest. But in response to that, they just keep arbitrarily adjusting their recommendations for anything that contains calories down. That's really what's happening in the hopes that it causes a minute shift in the behavior relative in the minute shift in behavior relative to the changes in their guidelines. So I'll get into that in a second. I'll have that make more sense. Basically, it does make more sense to keep recommending less, even if the recommendations before were reasonable or even 10 iterations ago or even 100 iterations ago. But a lot of things that make perfect sense are also perfectly stupid. It also makes perfect sense to pour water on a gasoline fire. If you want to spread the fire everywhere. Science communicators and science communicators, Freud was right, and policymakers would rather try and scare people into compliance, which has an obviously perfect track record uh, of working throughout human history, by the way, uh, rather than being honest about how innocuous sugar really is, as evidenced by mainlining it into small children to keep them alive. Uh, really, it's because 
they're afraid people will take that as like, if they say, oh, sugar is innocuous, they're afraid people will take that as permission to go hog wild with it. Uh, and is that their call? Is that anybody's call, really? And again, the irony is that, oh man, here it is. <laughs> really, the irony is that this many people give a flying flipping newbie about what the rules are and they do what they want anyway. And you know what happens? The harsher you make the rules, the angstier people become. Hmm? That's what history shows and continues to show. So what's the point here? The point is that this organization has an ethic of intellectual honesty to uphold, uphold more than really the hilariously narcissistic tendency to think their recommendations have godlike influence over how people behave. And the constant stiffening of food recommendations over time and the constant hardening of people's beliefs and viewpoints over food over time is really just response to their denial of having a poor grip on obesity and other chronic diseases reminiscent of that reality that they're losing control. They just get harsher and harsher with recommendations, uh, hoping that that will help. And when you look at information, that the, the data shows the opposite, eh? Um, and this is, this is really just in comparison to like, is sugar really toxic? Or are people making themselves metabolically frail? And that is for another talk. However, the toxicity of sugar is, with the perceived toxicity of sugar, is, I think, really proportional, proportional with how metabolically frail people make themselves. All right. And there is some businesses and politics around creating learned helplessness in people that translates into stupid products and stupid legislations and other guidelines. So it makes a lot of sense to kind of convince people like, hey, sugar is bad versus, hey, maybe, maybe you're making yourself metabolically frail here. Now, arbitrarily, that's an admittedly arbitrarily coined term by yours truly a few lessons ago, but it's a combination of relevant biochemical conditions, a concept that you'll learn about soon, okay? Here's basically what it ends up coming out to be. Well, if everybody is eating 1,500 more calories than they should be, well, let's just decrease the recommendations by 2,000 calories and then tell people to eat a crap load of vegetables to fill them up and hopefully they'll just eat 100 less calories because of it. That's really what's happening. And knowing full well, at least now anyway, they can't stop it. They can't stop people eating sugar and all these other things. Uh, they just keep making harsher recommendations in the futile hope that it changes behavior a tiny fraction in the direction of the recommendation. The road to hell is paved with good intentions, right? Think about it this way. This is like telling, telling saying, well, my teenager is going to bed three hours later than I tell her to, and I want her to go to bed at 10 p.m., so I'll just tell her, I'm going to come up with a great idea and tell her that bedtime is 7 p.m. Then she'll go to bed at 10 p.m. because she always goes to bed three hours later than I tell her. Hmm. Well, I told her to go to bed at 7, and uh, she started going to bed at 11 instead of 10. So that means her new bedtime is 6 p.m. So she started to go to bed even later than when I tell her to. I'll just make it 6 instead of 7, and that'll solve it. Telling someone to go to bed at 6 p.m. in the hopes that they'll go to bed at 10 p.m. That is the logic here. What do you think that does? It causes greater behavioral problems. It erodes trust. And it builds popularity of the behavior by virtue of taboo. Look around. History proves over and over that tactic fails miserably.
There's a laundry list of examples throughout history and that where, where that's the case, but I'll start with a single analogy um, and then mention a few examples relevant to contemporary times. One is obviously the bedtime scenario, right? Well, what happens if you pull a rope at a dog's mouth? As if on cue, it'll pull back, even if it means certain danger for the dog. That is how heavily ingrained that sort of behavior is. But this is a sort of twisted logic guiding public health policy and public shaming, uh, using it as a tool of persuasion or coercion, I guess. It's reminiscent, honestly, of banning alcohol, the severe public and private pressure around sex, even marijuana, and now it's sugar, although that demonization has been around for half a millennia or so at least, which whether you have strong feelings about those other topics or you ignore them, what's clear is that public policy surrounding these things causes a lot of problems and have caused them since, I don't know, 500 years ago and alcohol many thousands of years ago before that and sex many thousands of years ago before that. And when you absorb what's going on between policies and public opinions, you kind of see this sort of thing coming apart. Uh, sugar is fitting right into that category of historical traps. Marijuana, alcohol, sex, right? Those sorts of things. It's falling into similar historical traps. And frankly, as a doctor of biochemistry who has a strangely intimate and alternative perspective of all those topics, sex, alcohol, drugs, and sugar, because of, well, you know, biochemical reasons, it's difficult to determine if it's tragic or funny. Now, the morality of all that stuff aside, this has more to do with, well, what is the typical reaction that public has to harsher and harsher policies? Well, what happens when you tell a kid to go to bed five hours earlier than you want them to go to bed, <laughs> right? Uh, so... Many of these feelings just depend on really how much sleep you've gotten, how much coffee you've had, or if you've gotten into an argument with someone you care about. Your opinions on these things can change, which is kind of the point. It's kind of the point. So if you take anything away from this crazy rant, let it be this. Health as a property of foods and drinks is scientifically stupid. Health is a constellation of traits inherent to living organisms. I'll say it again. Health as a property of food and drinks is scientifically stupid. Health is a constellation of traits inherent to living organisms. In this case, that living organism is you. Can food or drinks be healthy? No, not really. Why? Because it implies food and drinks can be unhealthy, which is also scientifically and intellectually stupid, because that means always in all instances, such as the toxicity of global rating. <laughs> It all ties back in, right? It's empirically false. As Grandpa Cashy says, there's a tool for every job and there's an ass for every seat. <laughs> at most, at most, there's a discrepancy between what a person needs conditionally to meet the goals they have and what they eat. That is it. That is it. The rest is just like <laughs> arbitrarily poking and prodding and coerced. Like it's, it's, the rest is arbitrary aggression between people. Some people need more. Some people need less. Sometimes you need more. Sometimes you need less. That is it. That's it. Can you be in a state of health? Presumably, yes. Can you be in a state of unhealth or pathology, as it were? Presumably, yes. Can a food be in a state of health? Under these premises, no. Can food or drink be in a state of unhealth? Under these premises, no, okay? Only if you, ironically enough, view the food as a living thing, in which case there are discrete criteria that determine if a thing is alive, and that's covered in, I don't know, fifth or sixth grade science, uh, that can help you determine that. <laughs> 
So here's what you've learned, right? Or at least start noodling on. Is it prescription or proscription? What the heck is really going on? What is really going on? Even the World Health Organization seems to be confused. And maybe you learned a little about what, what putting a child, trying to put a child to bed on time, even if that child is you, right? What sort of, what sort of translation do you see that happening in public policy, right? And does a healthy food exist? Well, no. Although it's a colloquialism, it's scientifically absurd. And to this egghead, it may even be philosophically absurd as well, right? So throw down a hashtag bedtime. If you saw the connection that sugar has with bedtime and public policy and recommendations and toxic opinions and shaming and all that stuff, remember that maybe you had issues going to bed at a reasonable hour when you were resistant to it. And the more they pushed, the more you pushed, the more they pulled, the more you pulled, right? Or if you, if you tried to get somebody else to go to bed on time, what happens, right? Turns out it has a lot more in common with the sugar debacle than you might think. Thanks for learning. You are awesome. <laughs> Until next time. Want to continue having coffee with Dr. Cashy? Head over to iTunes to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. It is very much appreciated. Thank you, and see you next week. Dr. Cashy is out. <laughs>